And if you would, please open your Bible with me to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, and we come to chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 6. And we're going to consider the idea today of biblical womanhood. Biblical womanhood. Now, we're a few weeks late for a Mother's Day sermon, but we are going to spend a lot of our, our time today addressing the women. That's what Peter comes to address in this passage. Um, it's certainly not exhaustive regarding what a godly woman should look like, but it does set a lot of the, lays a lot of the groundwork and sets a lot of the framework as to what biblical womanhood looks like. Biblical womanhood is not popular in our day and age. The, the world scorns and scoffs at it. The world hates it. We live in an age where where feminism is certainly on the rise. But as we'll see in our text, biblical womanhood, a woman's life lived according to the truth of Scripture, is of great power, and it's of eternal value in the eyes of the Lord. So with that, let's turn to our text. We'll read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing. As we study his word, I'll ask that you stand with me as we give attention to the public reading of Scripture. This is the word of the living and true God. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I ask that you now be seated, and let's bow together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we praise you, for you are great and greatly to be praised. There is none like you, the God of the ages, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the God who speaks things into existence, the creator, the sustainer of all things. Lord, we come before you and I pray that you would give us humble hearts knowing that we come before a mighty, mighty God. But Lord, we also come with thanksgiving and with boldness because we come as those who are washed in the blood of Christ. What a glorious and what a good Savior. Lord, our desire is that our lives would be conformed to the image of Christ. Our desire is that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we are able to give our lives as a sacrifice which is pleasing and acceptable to you, which is also our spiritual service of worship. Lord, would you renew our minds this morning through your holy word? Would you sanctify us in the truth would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are ready and eager to respond to and to apply the truth Lord we are looking at truths that are well known and even beloved by those of us in the church but they are hated by the world they're attacked by the world. They're undercut and maligned by the world. So would you give us 
Would you give us boldness to take and apply your word as it is written, as you have revealed it to us in the pages of Scripture? Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in power among us today. We ask that you would help us to not be distracted by the things of the world. Lord, the plans that we may have today or tomorrow or in the week and the months ahead, Lord, but may we give our attention and our focus in this small period of time to the truth of your word. I pray that your spirit would empower us to receive and apply the truth. Lord, your word truly is solid ground. It's the mighty rock to which we cling. In every line of your word, the truth is found, and it is glorious, and it is good, and it's given for our instruction and our correction and our training in righteousness. So would you accomplish your purposes through your word today? Lord, would you be glorified among your people, we pray. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we think about the text before us today, I think the first thing that would again come to mind is the fact that this text of Scripture is absolutely hated by the world. The world has completely different standards of measure for what it means to be a successful woman. But we follow God's Word. We submit to the instruction of Scripture, and Scripture is very clear. We must reject the notions of the world. We must cling to the truth of God's Word. We must obey it fervently, and we must proclaim it boldly. So as we look at this text, we know that the world is going to hate it. The world is going to hate us for putting it into practice. But we must no less still submit to the authority of Holy Scripture. Now, as we consider the text before us, we must remember the context. Peter is writing, going back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, as to how the Christians should live their lives before a lost and pagan Gentile world. The believers were going to suffer. They were going to be persecuted for the faith. And yet Peter says, this is how you live. He says, this is how you walk in relationships. You remember we talked about the relationship between the slave and the master, the employee and the employer. We talked about servants being submissive even to harsh masters. And then that all summed up in the glorious picture of Christ who suffered the greatest injustice by laying his life down on the cross. We're still in that section. We're still in that instruction. We're just moving to a new set of relationships. We'll consider biblical womanhood today and then next week lord willing we'll look at peter and paul's instructions to husbands how the how a man and a woman should live together how men and women should live together in the church we must submit to these truths now before we get too far i do want to make sure to pause and make mention of the fact of the great blessing that we have among us at Grace Covenant. You look around the room, and all of you would surely understand that we have many godly women. Godly women are a blessing of the Lord to his church. We can look across the spectrum of age and stages of life and see those who are examples and who are models of these biblical truths and we want to honor those to whom honor is due, give those honor to whom it is due. And so we want to pause and understand that while we look at this instruction, we have models and examples around us, and we thank and we praise the Lord for that. But, but that does not mean that we have attained perfection. It does not mean that even those of you who I would count among the most godly of our women do not need to hear the instruction of the word of the Lord 
And you men, you can learn from this as well. Children can learn from this as well. And men, you better tighten your seatbelts because next week you will see the calling of the Lord as to how you are to live. So the women this week, Lord willing, the men next week. And all of this should come together as we strive together to press one another into Christ as we strive to press one another deeper. So just because we're instructing women doesn't mean that you men and you children don't have responsibilities. We must hold one another accountable. We share in the Christian life together and we press one another more and more toward Christ. So as we look at the text, what I really want you to see, what I think is just very clear and evident in this passage is that there is power in a holy and humble life. There's power in a holy and humble life. The Lord chooses to bless most often those who walk one in holiness and two in humility. That is how the Lord blesses his people. It's when they walk with him and obey him. We see that we must look to Christ as the supreme example, even the supreme example of being a biblical Woman, Not that Christ was feminine in any way, but he is the perfect example and standard of all holiness. So women, you must pursue biblical submission and external modesty driven by internal holiness and an internal desire to please and glorify God. That's kind of our, our purpose statement. The, the thesis of this text is that you pursue biblical submission and that external modesty that's driven by an internal holiness and that internal desire to please and glorify the Lord. So this can break down, I think, into kind of three sections, three, three exhortations, three headings. Firstly, in verses 1 and 2, we want to see the expectation of biblical submission. And that word expectation is important. The expectation of biblical submission. Look again to the text. Peter says, in the same way... You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, I think you guys all know that we could spend our entire time talking about the idea of biblical submission. The biblical submission of the wife, the headship of the man, the headship of the, of the man under the lordship of Christ. But this text really lends this idea of biblical submission to only being one piece to the puzzle. It's one piece of the puzzle about biblical womanhood. So we, we want to just see it in context and then we want to keep on pressing through because Peter gives a lot of instruction and he gives a very clear example at the end as to what he is calling women to do, as to how he is calling women to live. So he begins, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Be submissive to your own husbands. We've talked about submission a couple times, I think, in, in chapter 2, and so you may be familiar with what that word means. It's it's like that military type of command where a military officer is in subjection to his commanding officer. He is a subordinate to that commanding officer. He subjects his will and his actions to that which his commanding officer tells him to do. Submission means exactly as it says. It means to submit. We must be clear as to what submission is because it's a biblical term, and it's a biblical concept. Now, what stands out here when you think about Peter's instruction here is that he really gives this without really any qualification. Paul does the same thing. We read one of the passages in Titus chapter 2, but he does the same thing in Ephesians 5. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, he gives this command to be submissive and gives no qualifiers. There are no qualifiers to this. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't some caveats that we might consider, but what it means is that the direction of the heart of the person called to submit to another should be full submission. 
as we looked at back in chapter 2 where we are called to submit to governing authorities, we said that our hearts should be to submit as far as we are able, as quickly as we are able, as eagerly as we are able. And the same applies to wives submitting to their husbands. Submit with joyful eagerness. In our age, biblical submission would come with countless caveats. Right? It would come with many qualifications, and really what it ultimately is is a lot of watering down. Because biblical submission is not popular. It doesn't fit with the thinking of the age that we live in. And the caveats that we should consider are really what we considered last chapter. That you submit as far as you can. Your ultimate authority is Holy Scripture. It's God's word. It's God's prescriptions. It's God's commands. But outside of that, you wives, the charge is to Submit. Submit your will. Submit your actions. Submit your very heart to your husband. This is the Lord's command. This is very clear. It might rub the wrong way a little bit, but Scripture does that at times. And typically when, when Scripture rubs us the wrong way, it's because we have a little bit of hardness of heart toward the truths of Scripture. It's, it's hard to read, as we'll look in Ephesians 5 next week, some of the charges that Paul gives to a biblical husband of how you're supposed to give yourself up for your wife. But it's hard to read that because of the hardness of our hearts and our desires to please ourselves. So too, I think, is the case here. Submission is difficult because, as was told to Eve, her desire was for her husband. It was against her husband. It was to usurp his authority. That's the natural inclination of the flesh. But the flesh is sinful. We must put off the flesh, and we must put on Christ. Again, we come back to Christ, the model example even for women, because Christ modeled submission perfectly. Submit like Christ. Now, Peter continues, and we'll kind of press on to look at the purpose of this submission. It says, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Your submission is to the end that your husband is saved, or as we can, I think, pull in from another scripture in a moment, so that he is sanctified. Again, he, Peter writes of, of winning your husband without a word. And the idea of winning another is not foreign to Scripture. There's, there's two clear instances that tie together, that tie in with the command here. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, Paul says that, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. So there's one instance, the idea of winning souls to Christ. But there's another instance where we see this idea of winning another. It's Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, when we consider those early steps of church discipline. This is Jesus himself speaking. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. You have won your fellow saint. So when we talk about winning another through submission in this idea of, of marriage, of women submitting to their husbands, you have two ultimate goals, again, from the text of Scripture, from the authority of God's Word. It's the salvation of a lost soul or the sanctification of of a saved soul. Your goal is God's glory through obedience. And so when you think about that ultimate purpose in submission, I hope what you realize is this is a weighty, weighty calling. Souls are at stake in biblical submission. The 
glory of God is at stake in biblical submission. This is not just some charge, some command of a super fundamental Southern Baptist, independent, independent fundamental Baptist preacher. This is the command of Scripture. Submit because the glory of God is at stake. The salvation and the sanctification of souls are at stake in your submission. So let's think then, we've seen the charge to submit, we've seen the purpose, now how do you submit? What, what are the means, what are the ways that you submit, and what are the ways that the Lord works through that? Again, the text lays that out for us. Think about what Peter says, so that them who are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, by the manner of life by the conduct of their wives. Uh, the, the translations here are important, that it's those who are disobedient to the word, those who are disobedient to the gospel, maybe one without a word, but we need to be careful to understand exactly what is being said there. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter said how salvation is applied by the Lord. He said, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but which is imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. You've been born again through and by the living and enduring word of God. So when Peter then later writes in 1 Peter 3, to win your husband to Christ without a word, surely he's not contradicting what he just said and telling you not to proclaim the gospel. He's saying that by your manner of life, by your overall conduct, you prove yourself to be a faithful doer of the word that you proclaim. That can broaden out our application very broadly, even to the men and to the children here, which we'll consider in a moment. We cannot live out or, or just display the gospel and expect a lost soul to come to Christ. We must proclaim the word. We must proclaim the truth. What Peter is, is speaking against and not advocating for here is that nagging and abrasive spirit of, of constant correction that is not done with a humble and gentle and kind spirit. He's saying that your spirit should be almost, almost quiet and, and without speech by the way that you just live out the word and, and quietly and gently and patiently proclaim and apply the word. That's what's required of women. Not that you sit in the corner in complete silence, but that you faithfully tell and live and apply the truth. And again, this broadens out, right? This broadens out to all believers. For salvation comes by faith in the message of the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is how you come to Christ. Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. So let's go out and let's live the gospel before our lost family, our lost friends and the world around us. But let's not stop short. Go out and preach the word, and then live a life that backs up what you preach. Go out and show the transformation that comes when you submit your life and your heart and your soul to Christ. I'm sure you've probably heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. But I say to you, preach the gospel at all times, and words and deeds both are always necessary. Now, is there a time maybe to be silent? Yes, of course. But you can't just preach the gospel indeed. You do preach it by your deeds, but you must proclaim the truth. How do you tell the good news without speaking? So Peter says, women, submit to your husbands so that they may be one to Christ, not by your constant correction, but by the way that you live out the gospel 
and vocally yet gently apply the truth in your life and to every situation. Peter goes further about that behavior. He says, so that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your chaste and respectful behavior, your holy way of life. It's what chaste really means. It's a purity of heart revealed by a holy life, a purity of heart revealed by holy living. You want to win a lost person to Christ, show them the power of Christ by living in holiness, by pursuing righteousness by letting them see that there can be victory over sin because you're empowered by the Holy Spirit when you're saved. And again, we are all called to that holiness. The world should see that holy living, that holy desire of heart in all who name the name of Christ. Now there's another charge, another description that really applies specifically to the women. They should Observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your chaste and respectful conduct. That comes from the word where we get the word fear. You remember when we talk about the word phobos, when it applies to the relationship between one human and another, what it really speaks of is a duty, a respect, a, a, a right type of reverence and submission to another human. The, the phobos of God is a fear and reverence of the holy and almighty creator. That type of, of fear applied to another human leads to respect, a dutiful submission, a dutiful subjection of yourself to another. In 1 Peter 2.17, Peter said to fear God, a charge to all believers. And in Ephesians 5.22 Paul says that wives should submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. So join those together. Fear God and submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So how do you submit to the Lord? You fear him. You show him respect and reverence and honor. So wives, how do you submit to your husband and show him respect? The same way that you do to Christ in a sense. You respect him. You, you show him honor as the one whom the Lord has placed over you. The one who the Lord has placed as the head of your home and the head of your family. You show him honor just as you would honor Christ. Now Christ is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and your husband assuredly is not. So there are lines, there are caveats there. But wives, submit to your husbands and fear your husbands in the same manner, in the same way that you submit to Christ. So biblical womanhood begins with the idea of submission. Submission has to be there. If, if you want to be a biblical woman, you must have a heart of submission. You must submit to your husband and display the power of the gospel and how you live together. But every saint, men and women alike, must also show this holiness of life, this gentleness and patience and quietness of speech that we proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. We win souls to Christ by a quiet and a gentle spirit, not in that we don't say anything, but that we proclaim the truth with kindness, with love, with patience, and with gentleness. Submission and purity and humility, apart from the proclaiming of the gospel, are powerless when it comes to the salvation of souls. You must be submissive and pure and holy, but you must also proclaim Christ. You must also showcase the glory of Christ in what you do and in what you say. So there's the expectation of biblical submission. And then moving to verses 3 and 4, we see an exhortation to godly modesty. An exhortation to godly modesty. Peter continues, he says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or 
putting on dresses, but let it be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, we could join all kinds of descriptors to the idea of modesty. Peter is talking about godliness here. So let's consider the idea of Peter's exhortation to godly modesty. Um, Paul gives a, a similar, very similar instruction, but he adds a couple terms that I think are helpful as we think through part of this exhortation. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says that women should adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So, so let's consider Paul's exhortation first because he kind of he goes a little bit further than Peter and gives us uh, an idea that we need to consider, the idea of dressing modestly and discreetly. Really, that means that you should dress in a way that is not shameful. You should dress in a way that is not driven by any type of sinful, fleshly passions. You should cover yourselves. You should dress in a way that properly showcases and models and proclaims Christ. We'll get to the heart behind this in a second because the heart is what drives the, the outward actions. But let's just think, uh, think about that for a moment. To, to dress provocatively is to completely undermine the commands of 1 Peter 3. How do you display a gentle and quiet spirit when you dress inappropriately? You don't. You undermine that proclamation of the gospel when you do not wear proper clothing. Now, I don't want to go very far on this. I think this is a topic that's best in, in this type of setting handled at, at a high level. And you women can discuss this with your husbands or with another woman. That, it's one of the one of the applications of this is that you have some accountability where you have frank and, and truthful discussions with a trusted and godly model and example of these things. But you must clothe yourself in a way that doesn't distract from the clear presentation of the gospel that you want to give with your mouth. Why would you want to undercut everything that you say because you are wearing inappropriate clothing? I think we could go as far as to say that anyone who, who pretends not to understand what that line may be, uh, maybe it's a little blurry in some cases, but don't fool yourself and say, I don't really know if, if this is too far, if this is too much. If it's distracting, don't wear it. If it's distracting, don't do it. Um, modern feminism would totally reject this notion. If you ever see discussions about this topic within the world or even within more liberal people who would call themselves evangelicals, they would push all the onus onto men. And men are responsible, right? Men are responsible to divert your eyes if there's a woman who is not properly covered. But don't miss the point. The way that you dress, just like the way that all of us live every aspect of our lives, should highlight and should point to the glory of Christ and the truth of his word and the power of the gospel. That's really where that stops. That you do and say everything that you do to show the glory of Christ. Again, we'll, we'll leave that there, and, and you guys can go and have further discussion of application in, in a more appropriate setting. But now let's come back to Peter, because Peter then helps us drive this into the heart. He says that your adorning should be in the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of of God, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. That is what should mark your heart, and it should be shown in everything that you say and everything that you do. 
Keep those ideas together. We often can break apart words and phrases and ideas in the scripture, but keep these together. You strive after the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. So ask yourself, does my outward adorning, and outward adorning can be your dress, it can be your attitude, it can be your interactions, does it show that you are gentle and quiet, that you are well-ordered, that you are humble, or does it reveal something else? Does the way that you, re- you dress reveal a quiet spirit or does it reveal someone who desires, or at the very least, is okay with inappropriate attention? Again, these are frank questions to ask yourself to probe your own heart because nobody else can tell you what your heart is, but Peter drives this straight to the heart. Is that what drives you? Do you desire and crave this attention? Or do you do what you do out of a, out of a quiet and peaceful and gentle heart? Does the way that you adorn yourself, the way that you carry yourself, does it show qualities from your heart that will be stripped away in eternity? Or does it show the imperishable qualities that the Lord will only perfect in eternity? Think about that. There are some things that the Lord strips away when he calls us home. That that remaining sin, that remaining flesh is taken away. But the righteousness that he has worked in us the righteousness that the Holy Spirit has built in us, he only perfects. So does the way that you carry yourself show that righteousness that is imperishable, an imperishable quality that the Lord will perfect, or is it something that he must take away because it's sinful? And we can conclude on this thought by looking at the end of verse 4, where Peter says this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. It's precious in the sight of God. Now, friends, do you want to be precious in the sight of God? Do you want him to look and see your heart, which he does look, he sees, he knows all? Do you want to live and to order your heart and your life in such a way that he sees as precious and good and right? of great value in God's economy to live in a holy and righteous and quiet and humble way. Do you order your life in such a way that you make a clear reflection of the glory of Christ or in such a way that the glory of Christ is blurred and it's obscured because you are not being holy? Puritans say that all of life is lived to the glory of God. All of life is lived to the glory of God. That means what you do outwardly and certainly what goes on inwardly in your heart. So you ask yourself, do I live all of life in this context, the idea of of modesty and, and dress and the heart and how you interact with others, do you live all of life to the glory of God? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all. Do all to the glory of God. Now, we could continue on here and flesh out more about this this idea of modesty, both on the external side and the internal side. But let's look at at Peter's final instruction here. In verses 5 and 6, he gives us an example of holy women. An example of holy women. Verse 5, he says, For in this way... In former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So Peter sets up an, apostolic, an apostolically authoritative example. I want to make one note here that we must be careful when drawing examples from people in Scripture because it's the text of Scripture that's authoritative, not the people and their actions. So what that means is we can't make prescriptive an action of a person just because it's in Scripture. So 
So while we consider an example here, think even of the case of Abraham and Sarah, that Sarah is the example that Peter uses, but she still sinned. And just because she's an example doesn't mean, well, Peter said to follow the example of Sarah, and she did X, Y, and Z, so I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, if X, Y, and Z are sinful, don't do them. It's not the example, the person that's authoritative, it's the text of Scripture. I think it's also interesting to note the example that Peter uses here. Um, not that this is necessarily his main point, but consider the example of Abraham and Sarah. He's talking about the idea of submission of a wife to her husband. And when you consider the life of Abraham and Sarah and what still goes on today, you see the discipline, you see the response the curse of the Lord when the roles of husband and wife are not lived out properly and appropriately. Consider what happened in Genesis 16 when Abraham and Sarah had been promised a child. That child didn't come. They were advanced in their age. And Sarah tells Abraham, the wife tells the husband to go have a child through this manner. And Abraham does what his wife told him. And then we get the man whose name is Ishmael, who was described in Genesis 16, 11 as being a wild donkey of a man whose hand was against everyone. Ishmael's hand is still against everyone today. The people who are descended from Ishmael still cause a great majority of the conflict between nations today. That was all because the role of husband and wife was usurped when Sarah instructed her husband as to what to do. However, Peter lifts her up as an example. So let's consider this example of Sarah. It says she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, there are times when the translation you get of Scripture is just striking, and this is one of those cases that she obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. We understand the marriage relationship is not like a servant and master, a, a Lord and an underling. A, a, it is a union of one man and one woman becoming one together in the Lord. But God designs hierarchies in relationships and in the world. There are clear and distinct roles between the husband and the wife. The husband is the head. The wife submits. She brings herself under the leadership of the husband. The husband has charge over the wife. That's why part of the example is that Sarah obeyed. She submitted to his leadership. Sarah knew the call of the Lord and she sought to honor the Lord by submitting to her husband. But let's remember this is a two-way street because Sarah followed Abraham as he was being obedient to the Lord. You know, that's the, the all-important caveat to give to the idea of submission. She submitted because Abraham was doing what the Lord had directly told him to do. That's where the line is drawn with submission. Submission. If your husband tells you to do something that's sinful, you reject that. You do it with humility and patience and a gentle and quiet spirit, but you obey Christ rather than men. Sarah is a model example. Consider what the Lord asked Abraham to do, to pick up his family and everything that he had and go to a land the Lord said that I will show you. He just said, pick it all up, and leave. Leave everything you've known and go to the land that I will show you. And Sarah was right there at his side as he obeyed the Lord. She submitted to her husband. That is a model of biblical submission. Now Peter kind of finishes this section with a promise, with an encouragement as we get to the end of verse 6. And he says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. 
it's striking how often Peter comes back to the idea of doing what is right. Chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 20, and now again in chapter 3. Do what is right. Behave in the right way. Behave appropriately. Do the right thing. No matter what may happen, do what is right. And the promise is if you do what is right, you will be blessed. You will be as the descendants of Abraham. You remember back in Galatians chapter 3 where Paul talked about the descendants, the, the heirs of Abraham, the children of the promise, those who are joined to those early people of Israel by faith in Christ. We are blessed by and through the Lord's promise to Abraham and you are Sarah's children, her offspring, her heirs, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now let's talk about that, about being frightened by any fear. Peter acknowledges that the idea of submission can be a fearful thing. The idea of submitting your life and your will and your future to another can be a fearful thing. Peter says, obey, obey God, and leave the consequences to him. Obey God by submitting your life to your husband. So Peter's charge is clear. It's to stay the course. Trust the process that the Lord has ordained. If you have an unbelieving spouse and he remains in the covenant of marriage, hold on to that for a second, but if he remains in the covenant of marriage, your charge is to continue to point that spouse to Christ by a quiet and submissive spirit. Now, remaining in the covenant of marriage is where maybe a gray area could come in, and we don't have any time to discuss and cover that. But just think about the idea of living reasonably within the covenantal bonds of marriage. If your husband is willing to do that, and he's an unbeliever or he's in some type of sin... Peter's charge is that you stay and trust what God has commanded. Submit, 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 preach, proclaim, and display Christ. And while the blessing may not come in this life, it certainly will come in eternity. Casey was telling me last night of a story she read this week of a of a wife who had been married to her husband for near 70 years. And I, I'm not familiar with all the details, but he was an unbeliever and she had faithfully prayed. She had faithfully stayed. She had faithfully proclaimed and displayed Christ to that husband. And after nearly 70 years of marriage, the Lord broke through the hardness of his heart and brought that man to that is the power and the goal of biblical submission. If your husband is in sin, if he's harsh and overbearing and difficult to live under, if, if you are frightened by this fear because you don't know what will come, stay and pray. Seek the Lord. Be faithful on your knees. Be faithful in proclaiming the truth. It's a very high calling that the Lord gives to women and to wives. It comes with this glorious promise at the end of verse 6 of eternal life that you are joined with Sarah. You are a child of the promise that God brings about through Abraham and Sarah. So it's a high calling, but a calling that comes with the promise of eternal life and blessing in that eternal life. So, dear sisters, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Those of you who do not have a husband, ask the Lord to grow in you a submissive spirit. Ask the Lord to teach you how to submit your life to the leadership and the headship of another. Adorn yourself in such a way that displays the glorious gospel of Christ. That goes to all of us. Adorn yourself in such a way that displays Christ. When you grow weary, and you will, 
This, this race can often feel like a marathon. When you grow weary, look to the faithful examples of the saints who have gone before you. Ladies, consider the Old Testament saints and how they submitted to their husband. Men, look to, to godly husbands in Scripture and otherwise who have shown how to lay down their lives for their wives. May we all live in an understanding way together. May we run with perseverance. Next week, again, Lord willing, we will look at this command to husbands. Peter gives one verse to it. There's a lot of depth to that one verse, but we're also going to draw in from Ephesians chapter 5 because there's a lot of parallels in Peter's one verse to what Paul takes several verses to explain, but it is a high calling that the Lord gives to men as well. And the beauty of it is when these things come together, what you do in a marriage, what you do in a relationship, what you do in a life is display the glory of Christ, the transformative power of Christ. So, so this is kind of a part one. I think I said last week or, or the week before maybe that it's difficult to get through some of Peter's writing because there's so much that you would love to cover together. I don't like leaving a cliffhanger where we said, okay, today is all about the wives and next week will be all about the husbands, but time limits us to stop right there. So come back next week and let's have our hearts prepared to consider the charge to husbands. And as we do that, friends, we'll look at the work of Christ because Christ is the ultimate model, and the ultimate example. So may we live in such a way to display the power of the gospel. May we preach Christ at all times, and may our lives show the transforming work that the Lord works in us when we become his children. Let's close in prayer.